Welcome to the Business of You podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Gogos. This podcast is dedicated to helping you uncover how to turn your big idea into big business and grow your personal brand into the business of your dreams. Each week, I'll talk to founders of all kinds of businesses, exploring how they launched and grew their companies. Behind every successful business is an epic journey, one that can serve as a roadmap to help you grow yours. The Business of You is all about frank conversations and unique business wisdom for the entrepreneur. It's a chance to tune into the story behind the brand and retrace the path of those who walked this road before you so you can pave your own road to success. Welcome to The Business of You. Today's guest is Raju Narasetti. His current role is leader of global publishing at McKinsey & Company, but his career spans 32 years in media and publishing. He began at the Wall Street Journal. He also worked at the Washington Post. He even had a three-year stint as an entrepreneur where he started one of the top business news publications in India, his native country. It's called Mint, and it's still thriving today. Raju also was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize for their 9-11 coverage. I hope you enjoy today's episode of The Business of You. Today I have with me Raju Narasati. Raju, how are you? I'm very well, Rachel. Lovely to be here and reconnect with you. Um, We've known each other for a very long time. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to diving in and, um, and catching up as we share your interesting story and fascinating background. Well, thank you. Appreciate the opportunity to be here and talk to uh, your audiences. So today you are the leader of global publishing at McKinsey and Company, but our paths crossed at the Wall Street Journal many years ago in, uh, in Manhattan. Would love to hear your path to how you got into journalism, um, especially I know you immigrated to the U.S., mm-hmm. right, from India. So if you could share part of your part of your path that led you to journalism and then how you got to where you are today. Uh, thanks, Rachel. Um, as you can tell from my accent and from my name, I, uh, I am from India. I spent the first 20 years of my life there and then moved to the U.S. Uh, in 1991 to get my master's in journalism from Indiana University in Bloomington. And while I was doing that was one of uh, 10 summer interns uh, selected by the Wall Street Journal that year. And then uh, once I finished um, uh, getting my master's degree, I started off at a newspaper in Dayton, Ohio, called the Dayton Daily News, which still is, is very much around. Um, I spent a few years there, and then uh, the Wall Street Journal asked me to come and join them full time. Uh, spent about 14 years with the Wall Street Journal. Um, did uh, several reporting beats, covered technology, manufacturing um, out of Pittsburgh for a while, um, covered the consumer products industry, um, you know, Procter & Gamble out of Cincinnati and Kimberly-Clark and those companies, and then moved to New York to cover the uh, East Coast technology companies, uh, the big ones, IBM and Xerox and back then Computer Associates. And then as a lot of journalists uh, tend to do, um, moved into the editing ranks, uh, was the first media and uh, tech uh, uh, editor for the journal. This was back in the AOL Time Warner days when everybody thought those two were like aligning. Uh, so we created this new role, uh, was on the news desk. 
and then eventually um, uh, was the deputy national editor um, uh, for the journal through 9-11 and some of the most uh, challenging moments uh, in the Wall Street Journal's history. Um, then was asked to go um, uh, to run Wall Street Journal Europe, um, which was then based in Brussels, initially as the managing editor and then as the editor, where I also ran Europe, Middle East and Africa for the Global Wall Street Journal. And then um, I was getting to be um, in my very early 40s and, you know, uh, had, I guess, a semi-professional midlife crisis and said, uh, there was an opportunity to go start a business newspaper in India for a large media company. And um, being Indian, my parents used to live in India at that time, and I would go back ever so often and would be quite frustrated by Indian business media, which I felt like uh, spoke down to readers, uh, was, wasn't very explanatory, wasn't very global. And when somebody uh, heard me say this in public, um, they reached out and said, well, would you like to start? a new newspaper in India. And I decided to put, you know, my life where my mouth was, if you will, um, and quit the Wall Street Journal in 2006 to go back to India and launched what um, uh, eventually became Mint. Uh, its website is called Live Mint. And it's today um, uh, 16, 17 years in, um, uh, still very much a, a vibrant uh, Indian newspaper. Um, some people would like to um, say that it's probably the best quality business newspaper, um, which I'm happy to hear. Uh, so did that for, um, for about three years, uh, handed it off to the team that I had hired to run it and then came back to the US, which was always going to be home and uh, was asked by the Washington Post to become its first outside uh, managing editor hire. They've always hired internally until then. Uh, and my role was to combine the print and online uh, newsrooms, which were two separate companies, two separate organizations. One was in Virginia, one was in DC. Um, so we did that um, and uh, built uh, what I think was the infrastructure that allowed the Washington Post to uh, really be um, significantly more successful well after I left, uh, after Jeff Bezos uh, acquired it. Uh, did that for um, about three years. And then uh, News Corp, my, uh, my old uh, Wall Street Journal parent at that time, came calling and asked me if I wanted to come back and um, manage digital. So I went back to the Wall Street Journal um, as the uh, uh, editor of uh, WSJ Digital. A year into it, um, the old News Corp split into two. And uh, the CEO at that time, the editor at that time of the Wall Street Journal, Robert Thompson, became the CEO of the new News Corp and asked me if I wanted to move up to the corporate side of things. So I joined as the senior vice president of strategy, was involved in uh, mergers and acquisitions and growing some of the business lines for News Corp, especially into digital real estate. Um, I did that for a few years and then um, uh, another uh, opportunity came to become the CEO of the Gizmodo Media Group which uh, Univision, uh, the big Spanish television company, was getting into English language digital business. Um, and so we did a roll-up of a bunch of sites, uh, Root, uh, Gizmodo, Jezebel, Lifehacker, uh, The Onion. Uh, they put them all under uh, something called the Gizmodo Media Group. Uh, so I became its first CEO. That didn't last very long, uh, not because of the business itself, but because the electoral dynamics changed when uh, President Trump became uh, president. 
uh, Univision decided that they really needed to focus on their TV business, uh, which was facing some challenges and wanted to get out of the English language business. Uh, having just built it up, I wasn't the right guy to um, uh, sell it. So I said as much and uh, decided to move on. And for a couple of years, uh, uh, was uh, the Columbia Journalism School in New York, uh, teaching the business of journalism and managing the uh, business journalism fellowships. Uh, it was a fun role, um, but then McKinsey came calling. Um, and um, in 2020, I like to joke that uh, COVID and I came to McKinsey together, uh, ended up joining McKinsey as the um, uh, leader of the publishing function. A lot of people don't know um, what that is. Um, McKinsey has been in publishing for almost 60 years now. It began with the McKinsey Quarterly 58 years ago. And they are actually the pioneers of what people now call as thought leadership. McKinsey never called it that and still doesn't call it that, but they began uh, what is now seen as thought leadership. So it's been a very robust uh, publishing history. Um, it's, uh, it's global. Um, uh, a lot of the team is based in New York. Uh, uh, we published anywhere between 1,300 to 1,600 articles uh, a year on McKinsey.com primarily. The McKinsey Quarterly is still around. Uh, there's several podcasts, uh, there are video. Um, so it's a, it's a B2B publishing uh, uh, operation uh, based on insights that McKinsey has developed in working through its own clients. We don't talk about clients, we don't talk about McKinsey. It's really focused on insights and it's a free site. Um, 40 plus uh, newsletters, people can sign up based on different topics they're interested in. Uh, and the, the, and the thinking behind it is that putting out good knowledge and insights uh, is good for society, good for uh, uh, business, and uh, you know, hopefully good for McKinsey in the long run. Uh, so that's kind of the purpose of uh, McKinsey Publishing. We focus a lot on what we call the sustainable inclusive growth narrative. Obviously, sustainability really matters uh, to businesses and the planet. Um, Inclusive uh, become more and more critical, uh, no matter how you measure inclusivity, whether it's gender, race, ethnicity, sometimes languages, sometimes geographies, and then growth, which is, you know, uh, how do you help um, organizations uh, continue to grow, uh, create jobs? Um, so we write about most of those topics under that umbrella of sustainable, inclusive growth. So that's a kind of a long-winded way of, uh, uh, it hasn't been an intentional journey um, it's been somewhat Talmudic in the sense that lots of twists and turns, a lot of serendipity, um, but uh, here I am. Yeah. Well, what's <clears throat> so fascinating is you've really seen it all, right? I mean, you grew up in kind of a traditional journalism, the era of what I call traditional journalism, and, um, you know, evolved into the digital world and, and merged even the digital and the, and the print side, right? in your role, worked in academia, and now you're on the corporate side in, the, in a publishing role. So you've seen all sides of it. Um, I'm wondering, Raju, <clears throat> as, as journalism has evolved from, again, like what I define as the traditional, and, and I think of the old days when people were, you know, taking notes with a pen and paper and, and you know, the interview process might've been a little bit different because it was, you know, technology hadn't evolved so much. How have you found the, the quality of the content evolving from a more traditional approach to journalism to 
the the cycle that we're in today. You know, this digital hyper fast, um, con, you know, a content cycle that's 24 hours. How how do you think the the impact has been to the quality of the content? Yeah, Rachel. So there is uh, there's a lot of gloom and doom when it comes to talking about journalism these days, right? I mean, there's a real problem of misinformation. Um, uh, there is a significant polarization, um, and then a lot of splintering of audiences as a result, um, creating like interesting rabbit holes where you don't look up and see other viewpoints or other uh, facts sometimes even. So I think there are significant issues, but I'm um, I'm one of those who remains very optimistic about journalism in 2022 for a couple of uh, very macro reasons, right? So most people don't realize that it was only in 2018, 2019, that half of our planet was able to get on the internet on a daily basis. And since then, we're probably at about 60 some percent, which means that there are another two to three billion people who are already on our planet who will get on the internet in the next 10 years. So in a way, and, and not all of them are going to consume news, but the majority of them will want to see some news, whether it's local news or international news or all of that. So the way to think about it is that if you're in journalism, you are creating a product for which there are going to be two to three billion new customers who are already there, right? Who will ac- access your product. So from that point of view, the, the demand for what journalism can produce is going to be continuously growing. And if you look at any news organization, right? When I was at the Wall Street Journal um, and it was primarily print, if we added up all of our print editions, we had a total of 2.3, 2.4 million subscribers. If you assumed everybody read every copy, right? the maximum number of people who read the Wall Street Journal was 2.4 million people. Today, it's like in the 40 to 50 million people come to the Wall Street Journal. So every brand has actually benefited from digital. So you know, in a sense, journalism is never reaching more people since the invention of the Gutenberg press in the 1400s. So that's the good news. The not so good news is, as you know very well, um, I think a lot of journalism organizations made a fundamental mistake of giving away content when the internet came along and have struggled since then to kind of figure out ways to convince people that there's value and people need to pay for it. It's an ongoing journey, but people are, there is success all along that spectrum, whether it's the New York Times at the high end or very small local organizations. Most of us have gotten used to paying for things on the web, right? To food delivery, to Netflix, to everything else. So the mindset is starting to kind of say it's okay to pay for things online. So that's a good development. Um, there are uh, significant issues around misinformation, as you uh, as you, we talked about earlier, uh, which remain a real challenge. Um, and I, that's where um, I think the digital aspect of it, the speed with which things happen, has been a challenge. Because in the old days of newspapers, um, uh, if you if you made a mistake in a newspaper, the earliest you would be able to correct it would be 24 hours later, right? Sometimes three, four days later, when a newspaper would run a correction. The good thing about digital is that if you make a mistake, you can actually correct it instantaneously. The not so good thing is that you are not in control of what people read and what goes viral. So oftentimes a piece of false news goes viral and then a correction, whether it was an intentional or not, 
the correction then is not read by as many people. I think those challenges um, are still there. And because journalism now relies on other people's brands, right, whether it's Facebook or even TikTok or whatever, your ability to then actually engage with the end audience is limited by the fact that somebody else's platform is where you are. So that that remains a big challenge. But I again, um, I think like a lot of the gloom and doom about journalism itself is overdone. If somebody thinks um, they are a newspaper reporter, they clearly are going to have a short like professional shelf life, right? But if they think that I'm a journalist, I can tell stories, I can do good reporting, and I will be where my audiences want me, and I have the skills, I have the multimedia skills, then I think the future is pretty bright. Yeah, yeah. I feel, and maybe you feel different, but but I feel like journalists today are inserting their opinions in, in their articles more than ever. It seems that many um, publications have lost some objectivity in their reporting and pieces are more um, driven to a specific narrative. And I, I'm wondering, you know, A, do you think that's accurate? And B, um, why do you think that's happening? And just as a second part to this question, I also seems that, you know, more, for example, Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post, right? How, how can we maintain objectivity when so many of the large news organizations are owned by, um, you know, multi, multi billionaires who may or may not have some control over what their publications are printing to? Yeah, so let's talk about the objectivity part first. I think, again, um, it goes back to formats, right? And if you look at the newspaper world, um, page 14 or page 16 would have been labeled opinion. And another page next to it would have been lab labeled as op-ed or, you know, right? So the assumption was, because we are clearly labeling it, it's in a fixed container, it's not spilling over, people will know that what they're reading here is an opinion. And rest of the pages had analysis and all the normal labels. But once everything started moving digital, these labels didn't carry as well as they would because if you click on a link on Twitter and it's an opinion column, you may not pay attention to the top of the website that on which you're reading it. You will directly go to the headline and start reading it. So I think we've struggled to kind of say, how do we communicate the fact that something is news and something is opinion? So that's one. Two, I think journalism as an industry has done a terrible job of being transparent and talking about what goes into making content. There's been a mystique about it. There's been like, you know, a bunch of people going to, into a meeting room at noon and decide among themselves what's going to be on the front page tomorrow, right? And then readers see it and they don't understand why, what is. So I think we haven't been good about explaining that a lot of um, expertise, a lot of uh, guardrails, a lot of verification goes into journalism. And we also, I think, contributed by embracing this idea of citizen journalism, right? Anybody with a camera could create content and share it. We actually encourage that. And that, that's, I think that's a good thing, but that's not journalism. But I think we didn't draw the lines hard enough. As a result, a couple of generations, Rachel, um, you and I both have teenagers, are growing up not necessarily thinking about where something is coming from. They're just looking at something on a TikTok or a Snap or wherever. They're consuming it, by the way. 
but they're not thinking about whether it's coming from, honestly, the Washington Post or the Daily Mail. Big difference, right? And I think that uh, media literacy and kind of teaching young people the value of sourcing has also been something that the journalism industry uh, forgot to do for many years and is now struggling with how do we regain that. So the digital has also meant that um, individuals can relate to large audiences. Previously, if you're a Bob Woodward, you you wrote, you're still a, you're a famous man and a great byline, but you still relied on the Washington Post to get to audiences. These days, if you are like, you know, somebody with um, an ability to engage audiences, you can go directly. So the, the idea of like having an opinion and saying that as part of reporting uh, has become much more commonplace. And those distinctions are getting blurry and which some people could argue it's a good thing, right? I mean, it's better for somebody to say, I have, this is my personal view and for people to then read something from that person rather than hide it. So that's a, you know, there's, that's one way to think about objectivity. Um, so do I think there are more, um, more meat? Do I think there's more media out there where opinions and reporting or sometimes just opinions masquerading as reporting uh, are passed off as news? Absolutely. Right. Uh, and I think the challenge has been to kind of how do we convince readers that there is a distinction between those two. And I think some of the reinvestment you see happening in media literacy might help there uh, in some ways. Uh, so that remains uh, that remains a kind of an acute challenge. As for the ownership, um, Rachel, I mean, um, take, take Wall Street Journal, right? It used to be owned by primarily, it's a public company, but uh, Dow Jones, but used to be owned primarily by a, a family called Bancrofts. And then it was owned by Rupert Murdoch. And so the idea of like big media brands, um, I mean, the Salzburger family has long had a controlling uh, kind of say in the New York Times, even though again, it was a public company. So the idea that rich people have owned um, news brands is not necessarily new actually, right? Um, you could argue that um, the Washington Post under um, Jeff Bezos' ownership actually has regained the ability to kind of really tell great stories globally, uh, invest in journalism, uh, have the kind of uh, news talent and other talents that they couldn't do um, during the crisis, you know, pre, pre Bezos. So I don't think it's all bad as long as we fundamentally think that the editors who are running organizations are still preserve church and state and are still very, very um, concerned about making sure that um, things are objective. I think rich people um, being owners can coexist with good journalism. Well, that's good. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that from somebody in your shoes. And I agree about the church and state piece, maintaining that, um, I guess, that autonomy for the editors is is absolutely important. We were talking pre-interview a little bit about how uh, a role of a reporter in a journalistic setting is is very much about their personal brand, right? About um, helping grow the newspaper through the content they produce under their byline. Whereas in a publishing role that you're in now in a company that you're in, it's not so much about the individual, right? It's That's not what's helping grow the, the publication. Can you talk a little bit about that, just about the role a personal brand plays in, in journalism? Because I think that's a fascinating 
um, a fascinating angle to talk about for a minute. I think for a long time, we, especially in journalism, we didn't want to acknowledge that the idea of like, there could be individual sub-brands that can coexist with the main brand, right? We, we did it a little bit, right? We gave bylines, but we always assumed they would be subs, subsumed under the main brand of whether it's the Wall Street Journal or all of that. I think over time, there is a realization that these two can coexist and individuals can build up brands online in the service of the journalism they still do, and oftentimes in the service of the brand they work for. Um, Meanwhile, the expectations of news brands has also dramatically changed in the sense that, you know, the ability to break news um, and the ability to be first and accurate, of course, um, is now something people automatically expect. So if 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 you have a following and you are kind of, tweeting about a breaking news story on on behalf of your brand, initially you may not have the ability to link back to the the brand you work for because there may not be a story yet, right? But it builds some amount of trust. It creates the idea that this organization tends to tell me first about something that's happening, right? So there's value in that. Um, I think where journalism has struggled is in how do you balance the personal branding and the followership with making sure that you're still creating value for the brand, right? If you're not putting a link in an article for people to come back to, then they're not coming back to the website where you are potentially running some ads on the site and trying to generate some revenue. So I think that's been a that's been a tricky um, area. But I think we all we all need to acknowledge whether you're a small businessman, whether you're an author, that people do relate to people, right? Uh, so social media, in particular, blogging. Um, and Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn have given us the opportunities to kind of engage with people almost on a you know one to many and one to one at the same time. And having a personal presence and a brand, I think, is good within the constraints of you know whatever organization you work for or your um, your ideas. So the so the notion that somebody would have things that are interesting to say would want to write a blog post and put it out there, I think, is a good idea. The question then becomes like, how do we break through the clutter? How do we break through the amount of information that's out there? How do we become trusted sources? I've long maintained, when even when I was in the news organizations, that instead of thinking our, of ourselves as gatekeepers, where we would say, here are five stories we have published on this topic, and that's all we have, our role should become gate openers, where we say, hey, you're interested in this topic about small business, right? Here are four or five stories we have done from our newsroom, but here are four or five other stories that are of interest on this topic that we think are useful for you. Then people actually kind of say, this person is helping me navigate the sea of information on small business, and I trust them. And you know, that's what brings people back to you. It's not just you telling them only about your content because that by nature is going to be narrower. So I think that mindset change um, needs to happen where we should see ourselves as helping, whether it's our friends or whether it's like our professional network, people who follow us, follow us for a reason, which is we are te- we are helping them navigate and showing them some interesting things and having fun while doing it. Yeah, yeah. I feel like tools such as Substack might might be doing what you're suggesting, Raju, almost because, you know, some journalists like Alex Berenson or Glenn Greenwald, who have pretty active sub stacks nowadays, they are 
publishing their opinion, but also serving as content aggregators to some extent, right? Like here, read this piece in this X location, you know? Yeah, I think the value of um, newsletters has long been um, underappreciated, Rachel. Um, at McKinsey, we have 45 different newsletters, for example, and um, literally hundreds of thousands of active subscribers. That's how, if you're if you're busy and you're doing other things, the way you find out tends to be you get an email saying here's an you've opted in, and you get you there's an article that's been published on this topic. Doesn't force you to go anywhere. If you want to read it now, you can read it now. You, if you want to re- read it later, you can read it later. But at least you're made aware of it. So I think in that sense, um, what Substack has done is given individuals the ability to perhaps also monetize, right? Um, and then. Uh, over time, um, the networks uh, of like different newsletters that have come, because end of the day, uh, asking an, a reader to go to 100 different newsletters is also going to be a challenge, right? But um, that's why curation, curated newsletters have become really critical. I mean, I it used to be, I'm still old school, I still get three newspapers at home. It used to be that the first thing I did when I woke up was to pick up a newspaper. Now, the first thing I do is like probably the first hour of my morning is usually going through a 10, 15, 20 different curated newsletters. And then I, meanwhile, NPR is paying all the time. That's a whole different thing. But then I, if I have time, I read the newspapers in the morning. Oftentimes, like I have, I brought them to work and during lunch break and on the way back, I might read them. Sometimes I may never actually get to it because I'm also reading them online. So I think the idea of like um, newsletters as the initial primary driver of informing people, I think is very critical. Yeah, I agree. I want to switch gears for a second and talk about your um, foray into entrepreneurship. How did you, how did you find that, that, that I think you said about a three-year period, right? Where you started Mint. Um, how did yeah. it feel to be on, on the, end of things where you're actually launching something new. It was the most exhausting, fun thing I'll never want to do again in one sense because of the, I mean, I worked like, uh, again, because it was a newspaper, I worked from like uh, 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. six days a week, right? um, uh, especially because it was a startup. But it was the most fun. I won't trade those years for anything else. I think the couple of things to um, always keep in mind you have to have um, a mission and a purpose and you have to know what that is and always kind of try to stay in that lane. Otherwise, there are too many distractions, lots of different ways you can... uh, And then two, um, you have to value your time, right? You have to to, to significantly prioritize what is the... I've always thought like, what is the one thing that I can do that nobody else can do? And that's what I will do, right? And oftentimes, honestly, it's turned into uh, people management. Hiring people, I almost never want to delegate that. And then managing people, um, it's actually, you know, managing people is a is a privilege, but it's also like a hard job, right? It left up to you. Why would you want to deal with the headaches of managing people? But I like it. So to me, um, I'll give you a simple example. When I became CEO of the Gizmodo Media Group, I'm a big list maker. I would like draw. So for the first three months, I was having the most miserable time because I would go in every day with a list of 20 things. By the end of the day, I would have barely scratched off one thing. So I was talking to somebody who I was a bit of a mentor, and I was saying, I think I'm really failing in this job because I'm not getting anything done. 
And um, he asked me uh, why, you know, why that is. And I said, because I have an open door policy, which I still do. And people can come in and all days people are coming in and I'm solving for problems. He said, but that's your job. The list is the things that you can get to if you accidentally have time. And if you scratch off one thing, you should think of it as a victory because your job is to manage, help the people that you're leading, right? So that really changed my way of thinking about being an entrepreneur. And I bring that attitude to a job like, you know, I think of myself as an entrepreneur as the publisher at McKinsey, right? I have a team of, you know, over hundred people. And most of my day goes in like dealing with people issues. So I think that's the way to think about it. But again, you have to have a sense of mission and purpose and you have to know what the, you know, what you have to define success early and stick to it, right? Otherwise, I could spend all my time, you know, doing things that at the end of the day don't meaningfully add up to real success. Yeah, absolutely. How do you personally manage information overload? Um, a couple of small techniques that I've done over the over a period of time. I have a philosophy that if I open an email, I deal with it. I never not deal with it. So as a result, I tend to kind of, sometimes people get responses back to me that uh, the team is used to it now. We'll get like a K as in okay, right? Sometimes that's all I need to do, right? I don't need like people just keeping me informed or asking for something. So it's been a good way for me to manage like um, not put things off. Um, so that's helped me kind of prioritize some things. I still do lists, by the way. Um, and Handwritten. Yeah, these days I um, I have a I have a little notebook here full of lists, um, but these days I actually separate those into like um, uh, things that are high value and things that I still need to do. And if at the end of the day I haven't like mix and match, then I've only done like the you know easy these low value things. Then I've clearly not like been good with my time. But it's it's tough though. I mean. Um, COVID has made it even more challenging. I joined McKinsey um, at a time when uh, you know COVID was just hitting. For almost two years, I um, I didn't meet a majority of my team. We hired close to 30, 40 people um, in that time. Um, so how do you manage a group where you're also driving a lot of change? You're a new leader. Um, a lot of reorganization went in because the demands on publishing really went up during COVID. Um, meanwhile, 60% of my team are women with young children who had significantly additional responsibilities during COVID, whether we like it or not, the reality was that they faced a higher burden. So just managing all those has been pretty complex as well. So you have to give yourself grace. Um, if, um, if at the end of the day or end of a month or end of a week, I don't look back and say, here are two or three things I completely screwed up, right? Then you're not really learning anything, right? I like to joke that um, at McKinsey, I, um, I increase the um, average age and drop the average IQ when I walk into a room. Uh, so I surround myself. I mean, my, my team is like uh, a bunch of really smart people. So my role is to make sure that they, they do their best work. What, I, I imagine it was pretty challenging to be interviewing and hiring people completely virtually. Right. Over um, over the past couple of years, do you have any tips you could share with, um, you know, with other people that might be listening who are hiring? Yeah. So one of the ways we lower the risk and McKinsey is very good at it is that we have um, anywhere from six to 10 people talk to a person 
because not because we are testing that person because the, the person needs to make sure that they are talking to a range of people and getting a sense of the culture and um, which really makes for um, a lot fewer problems when somebody joins because they've already had like a view from very different aspects of the firm. So we really have a, uh, that's a pretty defined way to do it. Like with everybody else, we've been doing a lot of like virtual slash hybrid social activities. Uh, I have uh, every Friday from four to 5.30, I have a digital open office. Anybody can drop in. I literally don't book any time. I'm sitting there literally like this. Anybody wants to come in, can uh, come into it and make take 15 minute chunks and use it. Um, and then we we have we are over communicating. Um, I'm I'm all over the Slack. I so oftentimes posting things that have nothing to do with work. It's some things I find interesting, just to create a sense of like create some mutual conversations. We have a monthly meeting. In fact, an hour from now we do a we're doing a monthly update. We've created like a a monthly MVP award just to recognize somebody because nobody sees everybody's work now because you're not in the office. Um, and as much as I can, trying to travel again to get to just to get me to meet people. So I think it's a combination of things. Um, uh, nothing is like um, uh, none of us had a playbook for this, right? The only thing I can say is that if you think you need to communicate X, we should do like 10X. Yeah, so true. How do you think your team? would talk about what characteristics define the Raju personal brand? It's unfair for me to uh, be asked that question. Uh, by the <laughs> way, I know this because um, uh, I do what's the equivalent of a 360 degree uh, evaluation and people can submit it anonymously or otherwise. And uh, the most recent cycle out of a team of like 80 full-time folks, 47 people did it. Which is, And the other thing I do, by the way, is that... Um, uh, so I get the full report. My my super my kind of bosses, if you will, talk to me, take me through it. I actually then take the whole report and I've sent it back to the entire team because they need to see what people are telling. Because you know me and they need to because then I'm more accountable, right? If at the end of the year, I so I think they would say it's been a period of like dramatic change, uh, innovation, uh, and they would also say that it's been a stressful period. Uh, simply because of the demands on publishing really went through the roof. The firm has been great in allowing us to add a lot of resources. As I mentioned, we've hired uh, many people in the in, in the period of time. But I also think that people, uh, I hope people feel like um, the ability to try new things and experiment, uh, some will fail, some will succeed, has never been more, um, has never been higher. And I hope that most people feel that what they do matters to McKinsey. Uh, we not only measure it, but um, we share it with uh, whoever wants to see how we are doing. And uh, the feedback um, that we get has by and large been pretty positive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you see or what do you want to dabble in and, and um, experiment with in your future, having done so many things? I mean, one thing we didn't touch upon is the fact that you were part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize, right, for reporting on 9-11, which uh, would uh, imagine as a journalist, I mean, that is such a, a pinnacle, right, in one's career. But you've done so many things, Raju. What do you, what do you still, though, um, have curiosity around experimenting with in your future professionally? Um, I, I still think we have long ways to go in um, 
in, in interactive pub publishing, right? Where we, we still publish a lot, uh, but how do you get people to engage and how do you get people to kind of pick and choose what they want to out of that personalization is a long, long way to go. Um, we're still kind of throwing a lot at people and hoping they would pick and choose what they want. But the digital, I think, allows us to personalize and say, if Rachel is interested in small business, let's make that the primary offering from us. And then she can pick and choose whatever she wants. Um, and Rachel, I think just personally, I have never seen um, my career um, as, a, as a ladder. Every one of the organizations I've worked for, whether it's the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, uh, Columbia Journalism School, are all terminal jobs, right? People go there and we, people are happy to spend the next 30 years and do it there. The reason I have not thought of it that way and I have reason I've always kind of uh, done different things is, I have seen my career as more a portfolio of experiences to collect. And more than that, um, not a ladder, but almost like a uh, like a seesaw, right? I mean, you, you remember, like, we take our kids or we, when we were kids, we would go to a playground. The seesaw is one thing where everybody does it for a few minutes, you know, and then you really want to move on to something else. So the, the way I've thought about it is like... Um, I, I have the um, the ups and the occasional downs of being on a seesaw. It's time for like other people to kind of play with it. And I go to the next set of like, you know, things to do. And the way I have uh, asked and answered is like, if an opportunity has come up, um, the question I try to answer two questions. One is, um, you know, when is the last time I did something for the first time? And the, the McKinsey role was very uh, much an answer to that, which is uh, in 30 some years, I've never spent time on B2B publishing. I've always been on the B2C side of things, right? So not only, I know I can bring a lot to this role and I do, but at the same time, it's been a massive learning as well, right? And those are the most fun jobs, right? Why would you want to go to a job where you think you know how to do this and that's it? You want to go into a job where you, you feel like, I actually don't know, and I don't know if I'm going to be any good at this, right? I'm good at a lot of things, but so that's what keeps me um, interested and motivated. And, you know, you you learn a lot. I also, it's it's been amazing to um, go to large organizations and help them become more uh, relevant using digital technologies, but primarily through a, through a lens of diversity. I mean, my team is one of the most diverse teams uh, at McKinsey, we pay a lot of attention to that, um, not just gender, but in every which way, including time zone diversity. I'm a global uh, team that needs to make sure that we are supporting our colleagues globally. So I think just having that, um, and then you're at a point, I'm 55, and I probably have 10 amazing years of like work ahead of me. And I feel like I'm never more equipped to do that because of all the experiences I have accumulated in not thinking about my life as ladder and uh, just going up and up, but more as a seesaw. Yeah, yeah, I love that analogy. What last question? Uh, what trends do you see in in digital journalism aside from user driven content? I, I more less around journalism, but more around just content. Rachel, again, given your audience, I think I think people with ideas now have so many opportunities to share the ideas, right? So think of yourself as a curator rather than a creator all the time, because we, we, are, we can't be creating new ideas all the time. But if we say we are a curator, creator on a set of topics that you're passionate about, you have expertise in, 
then you can create a good ecosystem, right? And that's what I think makes a big difference because I'm willing to straddle a bunch of ecosystems and not worried about like, I just need to get it from one place. So uh, I sign up for like individual email newsletters all the time. And I see like, you know, the topic is interesting and the person seems to have ideas and they have expertise and they're engaging, right? And that's all it takes. And the friction is so little these days. So people, I think, um, and thinking of like, if you're, a, if you're a business, the idea of surrounding it with content, I think is just the way to go. This notion of content-led commerce is not just for the Amazons of the world, it's for everybody, right? Because if you can talk about it and create an ecosystem about the topics that relate to the product you're in or the business you're in, I think you just find more loyalty, more return visitors, and um, hopefully more purchasing. Yeah, that's great. Raju, thank you so much. Uh, if people want to reach out to you, learn more about you, where's the best place they can do that online? So on the, on the McKinsey side, uh, they should just come to um, McKinsey.com, uh, look up subscriptions. Like I said, 40, 50 different emails they can sign up. It's all free. Some amazing reports, uh, a lot of first-party data on a range of topics that people care about. Uh, personally, I'm um, uh, I'm on Twitter at Raju uh, um, and on LinkedIn, uh, and I'm always happy to engage with people. Awesome! Thank you so much, Raju. Take care, Rachel. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Business of You. If you found a little dose of inspiration or learned something new, please leave a review and share it with a friend or even two. Interested in building your brand and business? Tune in next time to the Business of You podcast. And remember, there's only one you. You're the biggest differentiator your business has. Until next time, friends.